Phil, you should like copyright the the Hawks and then charge your kid whenever yeah, he decides to go idea. professional. That's a great idea. Sounds like a real Britney's dad move. Right, exactly. Look, we just want to start a band and then we got sued by an NBA basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Did you know there was an NBA basketball team called the Hawks? <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, so we are back at 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong friends and musicians get together and talk about the albums on Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Listen To Before You Die. This week, we're taking a journey to 1983. Somewhere between Total Eclipse and the Heart and Mr. Roboto, between I'm Still Standing and All Night Long, between 96 cent gas and the Nintendo NES, landed the Violent Femmes self-titled release, Violent Femmes. So now that we know what we're gonna be covering this week, let's introduce the friends and family who are gonna be discussing the record (laughs) this week. Starting with... This is Rob here, and first of all, I love everything you said about 1983. I'm somewhat surprised, but those all sounded great to me. Let's take the time machine back. In terms of my encapsulation of this album, I think that this album is strongly the spirit of punk, but not at all what the punk music genre became. Hey, this is Adam. I'm the odd man out in that I've never heard this album, but I will say... This album sucks! (laughs) No, no. I think this album does... This album does one thing and one thing mediocre. I'm Alan, and I don't care what Wikipedia says. I refuse to believe this came out in 1983. For whatever reason, I will be eternally convinced that this came out in the 90s. (laughs) And you will not convince me otherwise. Cool. So, you know, I think my summation of this record would sort of be like that this finds itself in a really interesting spot sort of between, you know, the folk of of the 60s, so Woody Guthrie and and even the sort of avant-garde rock of, of, of Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. But it's also situated ahead of bands like Nirvana, Neutral Milk Hotel and Arcade Fire that would come later. So, I do think this is a pretty important record, uh, even if it is uh, like a, a diamond in the rough. Although I'm sure, Adam, you feel like it's just a rock and a pile of rocks and somebody I, picked it up and said, look at this rock. <laughs> I did have a note that I think the little girl on the album cover sees Andy Warhol in this recording studio. And uh, <laughs> and has permanent PTSD for it, the rest of her life taking some of those uh, Velvet Underground vibes and uh, running with it. Sure. So I know we just talked briefly about 83, but I want to talk a little bit more about the context and honestly, some of my own research when I dug into the record this week. So I knew Violent Femmes were from Wisconsin. I knew they were from Milwaukee. And when I dug in, what I really expected to find was some also-ran music scene. I expected to find that they were from Madison, Wisconsin, and that there had been a scene in Madison similar to Athens or Austin that just didn't quite make it, right? And they were the, you know, they were the, they were sort of like the the tip of the arrow on that scene. That's really what I expected, because at the same era, it's like Athens, that's where R.E.M.'s coming from, and that's where like Matthew Sweet and Neutral Milk Hotel and Hootie and the Blowfish are sneaking into R.E.M. shows as teenagers, right? There we go. Uh, Right. Are you connecting like, Hootie to Matthew Sweet? I have to we, throw we, the the yellow flag. We've already that. we've already got Hootie in on this podcast, so that's, you know, <laughs> yes. you know we're in a good space. The Austin scene isn't much different, right? I expected to see maybe like uh, Daniel Johnston is like sort of a similar like freak folk character from the same era, and I wondered, you know, maybe we'd see something similar like that. No, Adam, none just, of that is. Yeah, what are you gonna say? What do you think Adam thinks about Daniel Johnston's vocals? <laughs> I, I don't, don't even like Daniel Johnston's okay. vocals, and I like Daniel Johnston. Is is Daniel Johnston a member of, the, of Violent Femmes? 
No. Oof. Adam. Okay. Jesus. All right. Adam, come on. All right. <laughs> is that going to be next next week's album? I might have to rig the Albinator to come up Ooh, with whatever you just I, said. Yeah, it would be. I, I mean, I like Daniel Johnson, but it would be tough to say any of those records are. Yeah, that, they, they ain't on the list. You're not going to yeah. like them, Adam. Trust me. That was it. Was, All right. It's a joke about how consistent you are. <laughs> so I had expected to find some some hip college scene in Madison that these guys were, you know, leaders of. Not true. These guys are from Milwaukee, and there was nothing happening in Milwaukee. <laughs> no. This band was formed by the bass player and the percussionist. The singer, Gordon Gallo, wouldn't join the band until about a year later, which you have to ask, what is a band with a bass player and a percussionist, but no <laughs> singer or songwriter? The fucking best band of all yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not not only is there no seed, right? But you're hard pressed to even find other artists coming from Milwaukee overall. To, to, no, totally. I looked in. I was like, well, certainly there are other bands that they were gigging with. No, there's a very like there's a fledgling like documentary from the late '80s you can find on YouTube where Gallo was talking about how they were busking and playing coffee shops because business owners didn't like their music and they couldn't play anywhere. And they were discovered by the pretenders. They were busking in front of a pretender show in 1983 when one of the members of the pretenders, like hours before the show, found them, said, hey, you guys are all right. Help them get a, a help them do some recording. They went directly from busking to college radio to fame. I think the pretenders thought, man, we're having a rough night. We need somebody that's going to make us sound freaking awesome. Hey, there's a bunch of homeless homeless college guys. Look, he's got an upside down pot. Let's, yeah, grab them. Throw them One on stage. One guy's just freaking out on an acoustic <laughs> bass. <laughs> Also, I, one of the anecdotes I heard, just to give you a sense of how small the Milwaukee market was, was that early in their their tenure, I think the guys who weren't the singer threatened, you know, basically said they were. This is a temporary, this is a summer love kind of thing, and we're gonna leave the band to go on to bigger things in Minneapolis, the big city. <laughs> hey, they, maybe they were looking for Prince. You know, he was he was holding the scene well, down over there. No, but to Phil's point, that Minneapolis was a decent indie scene at the time. That's Husker Du and later Soul Asylum, and there was like a there was a decent scene there. But we're still talking Midwest, relatively small potatoes kind of stuff here, for sure. So Gallo has a, an interesting life story, and I do think that this it's Gano, I believe. Gano? Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. It's Gano. My bad. Well, <laughs> I wanted to see how long this, that that would go on. <laughs> Man, Gano's going to be so pissed off. He's right into this show. Well, I mean... <laughs> Amateurs. But what about Gallo? No. I think Gallo, <laughs> anyway. Gallo should be in the yeah. band. But. <laughs> Adam's like, this is the problem, guys. Where's Ga Gallo? <laughs> Gallo is missing. That's my issue with it. Anyway, so Gallo has a bit of an interesting story in that both of his parents are actors. He grew up in New York City and outside of New York City before moving to Wisconsin in the mid-70s. His parents both had children from previous marriages and those children stayed behind in the city. So Gano had these older brothers and sisters that were feeding him Lou Reed, Brian Eno, Patti Smith, John Richmond, and B-52 records, stuff that would have been hip in the city and coming out. B-52 is another Athens, Georgia band. This is the stuff that would have been like hip in New York City in the mid seventies. He's some kid growing up in, in Milwaukee to actors see the child of stage actors dude right? no wonder this guy was fucking miserable he could have been living in new york city and he's sitting there <laughs> stuck in well yeah. anyway sorry i'm we sure milwaukee or old creek or wherever they were from was beautiful um i mean that's really the whole story i i just think gano has a slightly more interesting background that he was and i think we've seen this echoed right in a lot of the other sort of creative leaders that often they come from creative families, right? Their parents were actors or involved in vaudeville or costume I didn't realize designers. his parents were actors, but that totally, like, that lines up and checks out well, so much. And and I think in a good way in some ways, like the expressiveness, the yeah, just total totally. transparency. Yep, total, yeah, agreed. And Gano would act later. Gano was on the show Pete and Pete. He was one of the teachers on Pete and Pete. Gano was also in Sabrina the Teenage Wish, which he was also a child musician in the Rugrats movie. So like Gano is a, like a, a creator, right? He's one of these guys that's just making. And I'm sure wherever he is right now, he's probably, you know, 
I don't know. Just not insert. busking on the streets of yeah, Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, not, not busking on the streets of Milwaukee. Small digression that's going to out me as an old person who doesn't know what it is anymore. But have <laughs> any, has anyone else noticed that there is now... I've seen a few different people wearing Rugrats gear in a fresh, like, hip way. That That's a thing? Apparently it is a thing. I have not seen that. Maybe that has not reached my corner of the world. Might, might be a West Coast phenomenon, but it's been <laughs> it's definitely more than once. I'm talking about jackets, like nice looking jackets. And like kids or like no. 20 year olds, 30 year olds? No, like cool looking people. Oh, wow. And it's okay. like and it's like a Rugrats print. You know, it's not just Angelica <laughs> once on the thing. It's like all over. <laughs> Full on Rugrats. Man, this is this is a complicated world. <laughs> I now get off my lawn. All right, so so let, let's let's keep this moving because I know we want to talk about the songs. I, I'm really looking forward to Adam digging in. This is gonna be great. But before, no, 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 I'm, I'm not I'm not giving you a hard time, Adam. Uh, but one thing I do think we should talk about before we jump into the music is sort of like the elephant in the room, and that's track one, "Blister in the Sun." So. I don't want to listen to it. We may have rolled it during the intro or something. But what I want to say about Blister in the Sun, I just want to open up the conversation of like, what is it when this happens to a song? Like I turn on this record and the record starts with track two. Like my brain just turns off for two and a half minutes. That's not even happening. Hold on. And then the record starts with track two, Kiss Off. So like, what is that? When that happens to a song, it just becomes like, Furniture, background noise. noise. Yeah. yeah. What's the Sweet Home Alabama effect? You mentioned that, Adam. I, I always like latched onto that. And we actually, Courtney and I, ref- always talk about this phenomenon of like no longer music, something that's like a separate thing entirely at that point because it's so kind of played. Yeah. Hold on a second. And sorry, Phil. It sounds like you don't, I'm not sure if you've listened to our podcast before, but we do need to roll that tip first. <laughs> So let's go ahead and roll the song that even if you don't know who Violent Femmes is, you definitely have heard this song. Let's play it right now. Now that we played that and we've established, first of all, I, I disagree. I think you guys are too, too, too stuck in your. I understand how songs get played out, and I'm not. Yes, I've heard that song probably too many times, but that's not really the point. Like, I don't, the I don't question, think coming yeah. at it from that angle is really that appropriate. And I know for a fact that a couple people on this call are also burdened by the fact that they were in bands that played the hell out of this song. Very successfully to drunk people again and again and again. I'm sure that's a factor here. And we probably all have been at a party and heard someone play it on an acoustic guitar terribly, whatever. (laughs) That's not the song's fault. (laughs) Well, wait, to be clear, though. I agree. I agree. It's not the song's fault. I just want to bring I've never claimed that. It, it like like lessened the song. My only point ha- has been that it it makes it a little. There, there's so much more context when you t- discuss the song that trying to discuss it outside of the fact that it is so ubiquitous. You know, you can't like ignore that part of it when you're. Yeah. You know, when you're discussing your own impression of the song. Is Wonderwall and Wish You Were Here are still good songs. I don't need to hear those ever again. They've been ruined for me by others and I, for me this song fits into that category so in rob's defense and this is really weird coming from me the guy who i, I honestly 1200 times i've probably done this song i mean it's an obscene i mean i, I did you know a Twice cover a gig for for <laughs> 10 years and i was playing six nights a week for half of those right so this is people love this tune now to remove myself from that and to try to listen to it objectively it's a fun song it's also it's a good song to start this album because unlike uh, our Ice Cube album last week where we picked you know a tune that, that didn't really fit with the rest of the album as kind of our intro, 
this really fits the album. You know what you're getting into? You're getting into 170, you know, beats per minute. Chuka chaka chuka chaka chuka chaka chuka chaka for every, yeah. you know, you know, eight out of twelve songs. You know what you're getting into, and it's a good tune. It, no, it's definitely a good tune. I, I like. It's a cool tune. It's super catchy. It's I. It's, I think I do think having kids it verges slightly into like. You know, nursery rhyme territory, just like super sing songy, but it stays with you. It's an earworm in and of itself in a vacuum. Yeah, it's a really good song. And we, we should say, too, that it was ubiquitous for us in the 90s. This was alluded to by Alan, right? It came out in the 80s. And I admit I was also initially confused about this point because it seemed like it was completely ubiquitous on modern rock radio throughout the 90s when we were the in 90s, high school, right. 15-ish years after it came out, which just, I was always, I yeah, I thought it was a 90s song too. I think it had something to do, it was on a soundtrack of that John Cusack movie, Gross Point Blank, but I don't feel like even that could fully cover it, so I feel like it's just a perennial hit. I don't know how it lasted into the following decades, I have to be honest. I don't know if you have any material on that phil but well i think i i wonder if part of it was the for for me anyway like and this is more this is also commentary just on the the album in general but to me it has like a really timeless quality to it because of how minimal it is like it didn't date itself with a bunch of fancy production because they couldn't afford it you know what or they chose not to do that you know what it doesn't sound like at all the 80s the 80s does not sound like the 80s yes so i I had in in my head I had an idea of what this album was going to sound like from a sonic quality standpoint. I know their vibe, I know what they do. I was expecting it to sound like somebody took an old Casio boombox or something, put it in a room and they hit record. The sound quality on this, while they do have a kind of trashy vibe, right? It sounds really good. Like the mics are good, the mix is good, which I, is just um, crazy to me because it's like a busking sound, I, it, but everything's really clean. It is a busking sound. I checked out a little bit of a documentary about these guys. And if you told me the recording sessions, you told me they walked in a room and there were just three mics, right? Like, you know, 12 feet apart. And they said, stand under these mics. And every song was first take. I'd believe you. Because like these busking videos, I mean, it wasn't just the sound of their voices. It it was the sound of their instruments. It was like the way they played the fills and the rhythms. It was like, is is, this is definitely the same guitar that you had in the studio. Like, and possibly the same weight strings by the same maker. And the one snare drum. I can't even be certain you changed the strings, right? Like, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's a very... (laughs) One snare drum. I'm picturing the drum tech like sweet gig. Yeah. He puts he puts, the snare up. he puts a mic on the snare and like leaves for the day. So sweet. That is a sweet gig. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the rest of the songs in the album. Maybe save one, which I think we're going to talk about, which is a distinction that's important to me. But it's a good indicator of what's coming, and I think a lot of our comments are probably going to run fluidly between the tracks here. But I, I think this song still sounds modern. I agree. They they managed to not date it in the 80s at all. So unlike a lot of the records we've talked about where we go play one note of this, I can tell it was recorded in this decade. Not the case at all. And I think that context is really important to understand the creativity at play here because they were not going with the flow, any anything but. And I always appreciate people who are trying to break new ground, do something weird and different, especially when they're in that weird little microcosm of a non-scene of, of Milwaukee, apparently, as it as it was. Yeah, I totally agree. When Phil mentioned the lack of a scene, it it made it even more impressive that they were they weren't like there was no osmosis from other shit that was happening in shows that they were going to. Like it was just some dude who wrote these songs at like a very vulnerable point in his life, and that energy stays there. And it all creates just a really unique package that definitely sounds, there's nothing else that sounds like this, in my opinion. Agreed. And and to relate it to one other record we've talked about, and to dis- make it distinct from whether I like it or not, Devender Banhart also had a lot of confidence behind what he was doing. I thought it was a worthless piece of trash, effectively, but... <laughs> And I think this is great. And so I understand there's a lot of subjectivity there. But in both cases, I admire the confidence of the performer to come in and go, this is weird. This doesn't sound like anything else. But screw it. I'm I'm going forward full blast. Rob, I do think there's something in 
I do think there's something in Gano's style, both his songwriting and actually just the sound of his voice. There's a direct through line to Lou Reed. Yeah. And I think that's something that you and I like. And, you know, maybe not surprising that, you know, it's, it's not for everybody. Right. So <laughs> I think it's oddly democratic and for the people. But, yeah, I know what you mean. Not everybody on this yeah. call, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know the other band yeah you mentioned Nudra Milk Hotel which Phil and I at least both love definitely straight line to guys like that the, the other band that maybe is not as big I know Phil and I really enjoyed the record Girls oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah. kind of reminds me of that you know but but again I, I don't think they necessarily sound like either of those bands but there's a sort of a rawness to it into the approach of songwriting and the approach to instrumentation and just a blind confidence in the weirdness of it. There's something to be said for that. I agree. There, one of the bands that came to mind for me, I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that band, Operation Ivy. Yeah, sure. So it's it's not stylistically the same at all. It's like kind of probably late 80s, early 90s, like ska, punk. It was the band that became Rancid, basically. And they did this album. It was a one and done Operation Ivy thing. But when you listen to it, it's super, the bass is really busy, which is one of the things that kind of made me connect those, these two bands, but it has a very similar feel of just like really raw, you know, short ish songs, kind of sing songy shitty production values. But, um, yeah, but also another really unique band. Rob, you mentioned girls. I also think there's a through line with Girls, but it's not anything like the one you mentioned. Girls is also founded by the bass player who doesn't write or sing any of the songs. And I was like, how are you the founding member of this band? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. needs a good bass player. I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. I'm not, I'm not dissing bass. I'm just saying you write all the songs and sing all the songs. I, I'll, I'll sure just say, band. I mean, this is, and you know, it's more of a exercise in personal preference but there there might be a theme emerging here so i'll just i'll just articulate it for our listeners and for you guys which is that i like things that are weird and an acquired taste and i like the barrier of the acquired taste which i think this record falls in that category such that once you unlock it you get more you know there's there's more there for you or you get more excited about it if you get past that barrier and i had that experience with was lots of my favorite things neutral hotel is on that list of course yeah i hear you on that i actually had in my notes acquired taste as i was listening to it because it it's it, it what's funny is so my my kids don't generally listen to what i put on for these podcasts like during the week but for whatever reason, this one he was commenting on a lot and he kept calling it the the, the really out of pitch guy. He'd be like, are you going to put on the really out of pitch guy again? <laughs> but it but it kind of landed at least. Your kid has great taste. Yeah. And he's, got a great, <laughs> he's got a great ear and tell him that uh, Uncle Adam is proud of him. <laughs> I'll, I'll go wake him up and... <laughs> all right, all right. So let's, let's move on. Let's move on to track two on the record. Kiss Off. Someone, a person to talk to, someone who cared to love. Could it be you? Could it be you? The situation gets rough, then I start to panic. It's not enough. It's just a habit, a kid, you're sick. Well, darling, this is it. You can all just kiss off into the air. Behind my back, I can see them stare. They'll hurt me bad, but I won't. They'll hurt me bad, they do it all the time Yeah, yeah, yeah they do it all the time Yeah, yeah, they do it all the time So to me, this is another excellent song. I, like, I want to I wanna be able to yell at Adam for all the reasons he's wrong about this record, so I really want to <laughs> cede the floor to him shortly. But I think this is a terrific song. It benefits from not being quite as overplayed. It's just a raw version of songwriting that hits still hits me like a modern song would. It doesn't feel dated to me at all. One of the little quotes, anecdotes I found from an interview with them, I don't know for sure this is true, but I'm going to assume it's true. They say it's the only album, according to Billboard magazine, to have sold over a million copies without once appearing in the top 200 albums chart. That's interesting. How many copies? A million. I mean, that's, that's not too shabby. Not at all, right? 
But I, I think it's I think it's a banger of a song. Actually, I remember one of the days right around the time when Arcade Fire was first blowing up, there was a video circulating of them. I want it might have even been in San Francisco, but I wasn't at the concert where they left the stage and then walked out to the street and busked this song with like a crowd of people around them. And I remember that it was kind of like an early viral video. I mean, this is maybe two thousand six ish, and they killed it. So, yeah, uh, so, yeah. so there's that line for you there to Arcade Fire, Phil. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I definitely hear something in this guy's delivery that shows up. Uh, what, uh, it, it, his, his, his name is eluding me right now. Wynn Butler. Yeah, Wynn Butler. There's something about their delivery that's similar. I would say Wynn Butler. I would guess Adam would like Wynn Butler more. And then he's, he's, he's more on pitch. He's like a powerful singer, right? Like he's moving a lot of air. Yeah. Right? But I think there's a, a really clear through line. At least I, I feel it. All right, Adam, on your so mark, I'm gonna sh- get set, go. <laughs> I'm going to shit on the bass while praising the bass. So I think what this bass player does uniquely well is that he makes it sound like there's a drum set, right? We know that it's a dude with brushes on a snare. Uh, the way that he plays, it does make it sound fuller. In that same line, that noise break down thing they do they did it a couple times on on this album and it just annoys me i feel like i've seen bands that just aren't good And this is what I would do. In fact, this is what I did when I first started playing music. And I was playing music with people who were, you know, potentially better than me. And it was like, Adam, solo. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. And then you just make noise. And everyone in the audience who doesn't know goes, wow, this guy's ahead of his time. He's just making noise. And so that's, (laughs) and I watched a YouTube video of them doing this live too. And like the bass player just looked like he was just, I don't know. So that uh, annoyed me. But again, the, I guess the, the silver lining on that is that it's catchy. I have to admit it. So what we're going to find as we continue this discussion is that I am reluctantly admitting that all these tunes are friggin' catchy because I've listened to the album probably 12 times in the last week, just in the, you know, the, the process of what we do of listening to these albums and they're growing on me and it's driving me insane. All right. <laughs> Good. I'm who's, happy to hear that. Can, can we, who's next? Well, actually, can I mention one other thing? This is kind of back to Blister in the Sun, which was the main song I knew in the nineties, but I think this song also rotated around a little bit on the radio kiss sure. off that is, and, and maybe added up as well. But I remember in this pre-internet in the last, the, the twilight of the pre-internet days, there was confusion about whether or not this guy was a man or a woman. He has a very high-pitched, strange voice, and even Blister in the Sun is a gender-reversed song, and I just remember that creating an extra layer of sort of mystique and... Interesting, yes, okay. Some, something else going on there, androgyny or whatever you want to call it, that was that felt like it was pushing the envelope that people talked about. I definitely remember feeling, you know, in like 1995, like Blister in the Sun lyrics were like very strange and taboo, and I couldn't put my finger on what or why, but yes, I, I you know, I definitely agree that in that, like you said, the, the, the dawn of the internet, right? Like, <laughs> also, like this... It almost feels like a trope, but I can't actually think of another place where it happens like this, which is the counting within the song. Yes. Yes. Okay. Eight, I, I was yeah, going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> I don't know why. This one had a uh, a Weezer thing that it just reminded me of some of the sensibilities of Weezer, like playful and uh, yeah. So I, I, I got that as well. They there. sort of attempt a call and response, like single two part that like pays off into like a three part like it's sort of like that but not really that organized right like because yeah, that's not still, their thing right like, still stupid yeah, yeah I, do I, love, I do love the counting <laughs> yeah i the um the weezer thing definitely came up for me quite a bit um i like this song and adam i'll, I'll kind of like speak to, to your point about the bass i also <laughs> so i i think the ramshackle breakdowns or whatever you want to call them that happen a few times in this album. Part of me wonders if that, if that was by design where it was like, okay, now it's time for ramshackle nonsense. And the reason I say that is because 
the bass this bass player is really good and maybe it's at a time in his like playing development that he hasn't he hasn't branched beyond just like and these guys are raw energy out there these guys are 20 as well so i gotta like i gotta you know Cut a little bit of slack. You know, they're not all uh, Jocko Pastorius. But right? I do like, agree, if you're though, young that, in your career. Yeah, that the, when they do the like, let's just where it all breaks down for a few bars. It, it does rub me a little bit wrong, but I, I feel like there's some intentionality there. <laughs> sure, sure. But you got all there is context here, even there. I know, and I know we spent some time talking about how they didn't have local exposure to these other bands but if they were buying records this was right around that time when noise and sort of avant-garde indie rock was coming online on in at least in terms of college radio stations so you have bands like like really loud noisy bands the black flags and husker do's and sure i think even talking heads were doing sonic maybe a little bit earlier we're doing kind of shit like that sure Uh, there there's a fun there is a fun tie to talking heads where um a keyboard player from Talking Heads, uh, Harrison. Jerry Harrison. No, yeah. yeah, he's not the keyboard player though. Is he? Yeah, no, he plays keyboards and guitar. Yeah, yeah. So Harrison is from Milwaukee, and would go on to produce their final record, um, which I mean we don't have that. We've probably already touched on the most interesting part about it, but that's a that's you know it's a fun detail that he's yeah. also from Milwaukee hmm. and. They connected around being from Milwaukee. And the the entire Milwaukee music scene finally coalesced. <laughs> yes. To yeah, into their 2003 to f- release. To Milwaukee. four musicians. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd draw a straight line between this album release and Giannis signing to the Bucks. I think so. Yeah. I think that's fair. Milwaukee. <laughs> Algonquin for the good land. Oh, I'm dropping in a Wayne's World thing and hoping we don't get sued now. <laughs> so we've we've knocked off tracks one and two. We're just gonna keep going. Was, do we? Have, do we? Have, please do not go on the list. We're jumping right to add it up. You tell me, man. It's your it's your show, love. <laughs> just take a let's, guess. Let's 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 just keep going. Let's roll. Please don't do not go, and we'll we'll come back and talk about this one. I'm up first. Listen, it's another classic. It's the third track on the album. We're three tracks and we get three classic songs as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like you're already in the in the Hall of Fame. This was great. I, I have a, a personal anecdote to relate about my first experience with this record. I heard Blister in the Sun, obviously on the radio in the 90s, as we talked about, and probably a couple of these other songs in various places, but I certainly wasn't familiar with it. But I remember when I was... 23 I moved to San Francisco and tried and failed to find a job over the course of a couple months and right as my money was running out and I was about to live poor for another year as it would turn out and eat plain spaghetti and drink only uh, Safeway brand gin I remember my last (laughs) treat to myself we can't afford sauce we're just gonna have the pasta no sauce but we need gin Gin on the pasta and you're getting drunk was one of the most important things in my life but but the last treat to myself i just remember very consciously thinking the last treat to myself with my last luxury spend of twenty dollars was i went to the record store i didn't know what i was gonna buy when i went there but i went there and i picked this up this cd and i had a disc man at the time and i just remember walking around by myself and thinking like, well, this is it. You're poor now, you know. <laughs> but but being but I was for the first time I heard some of these songs. I listened to it all the way through, walking through like the panhandle of Golden Gate Park, and I remember being blown away. I was like, well, at least I bought a great fucking album because this is this is awesome. Rob, for the benefit of the younger listeners, can you explain what a record store is? <laughs> <laughs> I think Discman might actually need more explanation. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't even think. I think that was one of the ones. I'm not. It was probably old even at the time, so that if you tried to jog with it, it would skip. Like oh, while, yeah. while you try to run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Anti skip, anti shock did nothing. I'm just sitting there thinking, I shall live an austere life like the production on this record. <laughs> Gotta get in character. He went to 11 on the annoying voice thing here. I know I'm nitpicking. I mean, no. I can, I mean, I look, can see Rob rolling his voice. eyes. It's not, uh, you know, he doesn't sound yeah. like Pavarotti or anything. When he's, when he's talking to mom about how he could travel over the whole world, I feel like they did a couple takes on that where they're like, can you just make it a little more annoying? I'm, I'm stuck on this lovely girl. And you know, I could travel. I could travel over the whole world. And you know what she does? She turns. So that was a little rough to get through. This, but this again, com- God damn it, it's catchy, man. This comes up later. It bothers too, me on 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 Gone Daddy Gone, uh, which we'll talk about later. But I'm sort of just a sucker for like spoken word over music and je- like I can listen to moody blues records all day. I just like there's a there's like a moody there's like there's a record with like moody blues and Rick Wakeman and some it's like Orson Welles doing Journey to the Center of the Earth. It probably sold like eleven copies and I've owned two of them, right? Yes. Which I, I don't own either of them now, so I'm gonna have to go out and get like three of. Three, I mean, as a fish fan, you kind of have to like spoken word over. Yes, I've always been a sucker for that. Over changes, yes. yeah. Th- this is an awesome song, like. You know, the, 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 Adam, you said recently the curmudgeon's back. Like sometimes the curmudgeon in me <laughs> wants to come out and say like, eh, it's just like one, four, five and it's basic, but it's, it's just a fucking great song. And what I love specifically about this song and a lot of songs on the album, like back to the bass, the guitar is all it's doing is like a little reggae chord and you almost don't hear it at all. Like if, if you just removed that from the track and it was just the bass line, it could still get it by. would carry yeah. it's a, totally. it's totally backbone of the song and in, and the bass solo if you want to call it that is nothing special like technically but it's some you know he's he's playing his heart out playing as much as he's capable of playing oh bless his soul you know, he's trying just, and he's using no, a pick <laughs> and he's using an acoustic bass yeah no but it's it's a great song i i i dig it Props to anybody who can take 145 in this day and age or even 35 years ago and make something of it. I can't believe this song was just sitting around waiting to be written. I know it's a very simple song, but I think that's part of its charm. When people can do something new sounding, it definitely doesn't sound like other songs that are 145, of which there are millions. So I'm more impressed that you took such simple building blocks and created something anew. So let me put this in context as well, which is why, again, I'm reluctantly thinking that I might quote unquote come around, but here we go. 1983, your big tunes are uh, Duran Duran, Hungry Like the Wolf, right? Like we're in the middle of the eighties here. Peak eighties. Uh, well, I mean, not, not quite peak eighties. We're getting there. Right. Africa by, by Toto. Oh yeah. There was, it was another one of, uh, Electric Avenue, come on, Eileen. I mean, wait, police synchronicity. This was the uh, oh, the send off for the police. Yeah, Sticks, Mister Roboto. I thriller, mean, we're talking Thriller came out in late '82, so Thriller would have been all over the radio, which is right in there with Toto being at the top of their game. You know, sure, yeah. So I can appreciate coming at this from deliberate minimalism. Damn it. All right. Well, one of the things we're, we overuse is Birth of Indie or whatever, but yeah. this is this is the right time, right place. College radio was not even a thing, right? You know, it was just becoming a thing right around this time, and independent bands and independent labels. This was the very, very early days. So whether they whether it was happenstance or not, like they they charted a course that I think a lot of other bands definitely followed, which is to wave your freak flag, do what the hell you want to do. And I, I would love for us to even talk more. By, by the way, this is a nice little bass breakdown. I mean, we, I know we've been talking a lot about sure, the bass, yeah. and I think I think despite the singer kind of being so prominent with his relatively unusual voice, 
I definitely get the sense the bass player is the musical director on these tracks, right? Does that sound accurate to you guys? He found he's the founding member of the band. So. I noticed he was always elbowing the singer out of the way in the interviews too. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't writing the songs though, right? That was the uh, that was the Gano was right, writing but, all the songs, but more. But more like the arranger or <laughs> Mr. Guano something. Anyway, but like this idea of busking production. Do we do we think they went in there as a band who had done a ton of busking and said this is the sound we want? We want to re- retain this because I never thought I about would, it. Quite I would that way. definitely say based on some of like the and when I say live, I mean like VHS camcorder shot on like the steps of you know the Milwaukee post office sort of stuff <laughs> blister in the sun kiss off like please don't go add it up that sort of like really raw acoustic sound yeah absolutely songs like confessions or gone daddy gone that have like a little more instrumentation i won't speak to those but some of these songs really do like i said if you told me they walked into a room with three mics and somebody said you're rolling and every song is the first take i'd believe you like well, bluegrass if, style yeah. where everybody just knows their position and yeah. for the mic. Yeah. Well, if, if I'm not mistaken, they recorded this with, I mean, they, they weren't, this wasn't like, they weren't signed. I think they borrowed money from the drummer's dad or something. I think he fronted them like 10 grand to record the that's album. Where his, that's where his drums went. He <laughs> sold them all except the snarer in order to fund the album. Ah, it makes sense. I mean, all right. Really, what, what, what a service he provided. <laughs> he got rid of his sticks too and just picked up a bunch of <laughs> never mind. But yeah, I, I don't think they had like a, a bunch of resources really to although I mean being able to just be like, hey dad, can I get ten grand in eight, 1983 to record an album? You know, you're not like destitute or anything, but let's move on to add it up. So th- apparently this song is explicit. So let's roll this one. I think we all know why it's explicit. <laughs> let's roll this one. We'll be right back. And I will start. Why can't I get just one kiss? Why can't I get just one kiss? Maybe some things I wouldn't. I need a kiss Why can't I get just one screw Why can't I get just one screw Believe me, I know what to do But something won't let me make love to you Let's hear from Adam first More brushes on the drums? Wow, it's that same that same beat It's okay It kind of sounds like a rest, you know, the rest of the songs Nothing really stuck out too much. The the guitar player took his turn at doing the noise solo, which is a noise solo. It didn't it didn't do much for me. Yeah, th- I, this song I don't know. It's it's obviously like kind of become this iconic underground rock classic. I guess like everyone kind of knows the song, and I I kind of went back and forth on it. Where on one hand I was like, you know, I totally respect the just transparent nature of this. Like there's no, I'm not going to hit you with a bunch of metaphors or, you know, try to cloak my message in imagery. It's just bleh. like here it is. So I respect that. There was also a side that's like, there's just a crassness to some of the lyrics that like, I, you know, that sound like an old man, but it just was, <laughs> it's a little hard to get past. And, and the, the, a- after listening to ice cube last week, <laughs> I'm a man of taste here, damn it. But yeah, it's um and I do I do agree this is one of those examples of that like chugga chugga drum beat that was probably showed up on like half the album. Um look, but you're both yeah. insanely wrong. This is the banger to, this is the song. This is the banger to end all bangers this is, on this song. This is the tune? Yeah, all this right. is the hey, tune. Hey, I called it an iconic rock song. That's 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 all you're getting from me. It has a special place in my heart. It's it, but you have but with context, it's definitely teenage angst. I, I agree. They're not mature sounding lyrics. It's like it's like a thirteen year old rewrote subterranean homesick blues or something. And they did it with only two chords, which maybe Bob Dylan only had two chords, come to think of it, right? So following in that line, but they milk a lot out of a little and I love it. He gets a lot melodically out of really one chord with a small change. That's really what's going on through the entire song. I didn't realize and 
to the benefit of the song, Rock. God damn it, you're doing it again. Uh, that's <laughs> convincing me. <laughs> it is only two chords. And wow, it's really right, one right. chord when he's singing because like every once in a while they go, that's the second chord, and then they go right back to chord number one and they stay on it. Okay, and for that you get a lot of variety in the melody, in the delivery. It has a special place in my heart because I didn't play it to death, but I did play it a couple times and it went really pretty well with our band. This is years ago. Oh, nice! You actually played this. Did play it, and it was a fun song to sing and try to sing, and it somehow borders on rapping. Like, you get out of breath, you know, singing it, you know, <laughs> which is fun, and it's just high energy, and it's but it, and it's punk. Like, you have to kind of like the punk aesthetic of just energy above everything. I think, I think this is where you and I sort of see eye to eye, Rob, right? It's like, I actually don't love what most people would consider punk, and that's because it's a little too thrashy and a little too distorted and like, but there's something about this sort of like folk punk thing that works for me. It sort of just brings down the intensity of the band a little mm-hmm. and sort of puts a little more focus on the lyrics and the storytelling. And for me, that like that that is more than enough. Neutral Milk does it, Hotel does it for me. Nirvana did it for me in the same way. And in a weird way, I... I like Woody Guthrie. I like Hank Williams, like Hank Williams, like the old dude that like died in the back of a car, right? 50s, yeah, right. And then like there's, again, there's just like, there's a real focus on the, on the storytelling and, and like uh, the frankness of the songs, right? And, and there, there is something about that style that resonates with me often. And for me, this song, I guess maybe I'm, articulating it for the first time but i do connect it to subterranean homesick blues which when i was 12 and first heard that bob dylan song that exploded my brain that was that was a seminal song for me of just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall with this kind of energy and i I consider that sort of in the timeline of punk if you will too so yes i'm using a liberal or broader definition of that term to refer to an energy aesthetic or a challenging aesthetic yeah i agree with everything you said phil all right. Anybody else before we move to Gone Daddy Gone, which I believe will be the last track? Can I just there, quote? Yeah. I thought I found this quote from the Rolling Stone review. I believe the original one, although they probably reviewed it a couple times. And I thought this summed up kind of how I felt about it. And maybe even how Adam feels about it. Which is, Violent Femmes is the unnervingly precocious debut of a Milwaukee trio that not only acts like it just reinvented rock and roll, but somehow manages to sound like it as well. I can see that. Yeah, there's definitely a confidence. A swagger thing. But I think it's well-deserved. Like, I, I think it's, you know, well, well-earned. well It's like, some stuff like this is so, yes, it's angsty, and yes, we're biased by having listened to it when we were younger and more angsty as human beings, of course. So it's hard to... It's hard to separate myself from that and say what it would be like listening to it as a 41-year-old man anew. I'll be for the first for time, the first right. time. So that I'll give you that, Adam, if that's the experience you're having, you know, and acknowledge that that would be quite a different experience. But I do. But in just in this in the grand scheme of staying in touch with what music is trying to do, music that is primarily made by young people for young people. That's just the way it goes. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I feel cheated. Right. <laughs> this this is a great example of something that feels so raw and personal that it almost feels like it's something I shouldn't be listening to. Mm-hmm. It makes me a little uncomfortable. And I like that feeling, and I like the daring nature of committing stuff like that to tape. And we could, again, reference all the other material that we've talked about. But to me, that is just a really special quality on a record when I feel like, damn, I can't believe you put it you put that down for me to hear. That's intense. No, I agree. It's like you're someone is burying their soul essentially, yeah. and like, but and even from a musical perspective, I, I saw a quote that I think was attributed to the bass player, where uh, there was some uncertainty about like putting this material out, and he's like, "We all knew it was fucking good. Like he's we 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 weren't even there was no question in our mind. We knew we made a fucking masterpiece, and like that seems super cocky and you know whatever you want to call it." But I think there's something to be said for that. And I think they were kind of right in a lot of ways. 
Fair enough. No, I I I I agree, but I also, I, Rob, I think you made some interesting points about how I might feel about this if I heard it cold now. Now that I've had forty years to beat me up and break my soul of what being young <laughs> felt like. Twenty. I don't know if I like that. Why can't I get one screw? I've been getting screwed over for twenty years. <laughs> the government and taxes and. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Speaking of getting screwed, let's move on to the last track we're going to review, Gone Daddy Gone. Oh, love dress, high school smiles, oh yes. Beautiful girl, love dress. Where she is now, I can only guess. Because it's gone, daddy gone. Love is gone, it's gone, daddy gone. Love is gone, it's gone, daddy gone. Love is gone, it's gone, daddy gone. So this song isn't about getting screwed or screwing or getting screwed over more than any of the other songs. But Rob, I do think this track highlights exactly what you just said. I can't believe he put that down. The first two lines in this song are beautiful girl, lovely dress, high school smiles. Oh, yes. That is creepy as shit. And he's like 22 when he's writing this. That's creepy, creepy, creepy. Well, didn't he write this when he was 18? That doesn't matter. Probably, yeah. can't say that. (laughs) 1983, man. Shit was wild back then. Canceled. (laughs) I think these songs were gestating for a while. Well, listen, I, I challenge the group here. Name another song with xylophone in it. Another hit song. I'm sure there's some Femi Kuti that we could dredge up. <laughs> but this feels like if I was in high school and there happened to be, I had an accordion laying around my house. And if I learned just enough accordion to do a mediocre solo or to like back up, or we had a, a saxophone laying at my around at my house growing up. If I learned three notes on saxophone that sounded decent and I put those in the background, would everyone go, oh my God, saxophone and accordion this guy's amazing or he learned just enough to get through the song i didn't say name me a better xylophone player (laughs) i'm sure those are out there given the album i don't think that this is that out of line it's it's not that uh i think it was a cool not that earth shattering it was a cool and impactful decision that that makes the song stand out and we should we should mention right that people might know it better as the gnarls barkley cover Oh. Well, that's what's funny is like I obviously knew of the Violent Femmes version, but I have probably heard the Gnarls Barkley version more, just more frequently, more times to the point where they've almost like in my mind absorbed that song as theirs. Um, but yeah, Rob, you mentioned something earlier about how much you can do with, you know, one or two chords or one or two like motifs, because I feel like that is exactly what happened with this song where that that kind of riff, I feel like anybody could just be tooling around on guitar or bass and just be like, do, 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 do. But like to just say, Hey, I'm going to structure a whole song around this. And it sounds kind of fresh and, and yeah, I think it's, well, well it is. Yeah. I mean, to that end, and it's funny you said that cause I sort of just like rolled over to the keyboard to try to figure out the same thing. It definitely has a descending chromatic line, which is unique to the rest of like everything else is pretty much just changes right and this definitely has like a, a descending thing in it that is decidedly different musically than everything else on the record and that's before you get to the ripping uh, i'm gonna go with vibraphone solo no it's not a vibraphone it, what, what is the credit on that i'm gonna look that up right now let's see let's that is Marimba, this is maybe this is a small thing, but you know another thing that really bothers me and makes music bland, in my opinion, a lot of popular music and and certainly, I don't know, a lot of punk music even, but but just music in general is a lack of rhythmic rhythmic changes and ev- everything is rhythmically played very straight ahead. And just right off the bat, you have a riff here that goes one two three four one two three four one two three, you know, like it has a little bit of a mm-hmm. what? How does it go? <laughs> help help me out phil <laughs> you want me to sing it is that what you want 
Can you sing the? Xylophone oh, it has uh, it has syncop it has syncopation is what. Hang I on, let, is that what you? Let want? me do the brushes for you. It's not just power chords playing. Yeah. Four over four constantly. Sure. No, I I know what you mean. No, I think it's somebody tooling around on a riff and saying, "Hey, like I want to turn this into something in a way that you could play that and it would sound like a throwaway." And so for me to come back and unshit on what I was saying about the xylophone or vibraphone or whatever it's it was. It's a xylophone. <laughs> all right. There's a bunch of people online who like you know, showed modern day musicians who like replicated and covered the xylophone solo. It's not easy. Just watch what the guys are doing. So as much as I do say, all right, it's just three and notes. And it is, it mean, is the bass the, player playing the, the xylophone solo. All right. So, gonna, so this, this further, I think, reinforces that. You know, I'll give him some credit. Yeah, I'll he, give him some he credit. Is the, he is the, the, at least the musical sort of like creative driver and maybe did earn his founding member. You know, I mean, if you're in your bedroom and you say, my band is called Violent Fans. I mean, who? Who was anyone to argue with you, right? right. If, he, if he worked, if he walked up to Gatto and said, "Hey, man, I'm in a band called Violent Femmes. Want to try out?" Right? right? Like, who's to say he didn't found the band? Right? right. My son went through a phase where he wanted to uh, start a band, and he knew all these things about the band, uh, which included he would play drums and trombone and sing, and the name of the band would be called Hawks. And I told him. Dude, I told him, I, if you I, want to be in a band and you tell your friends, I'm in a band called Hawks. Do you want to play at Hawks? You're going to get, you're going to attract way more flies with that. Than, than, like, Hawks is a fucking badass band name. <laughs> yeah, Hawks. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know how he's going to play drums and trombone, but he'll figure that out. He's it sounds to. like Hawks could be like an Eagles cover band. Right. Wasn't that uh, what the band was originally called when they were playing? I think that was The Hawks. Or they played with a guy called Ronnie Hawkins or something. Yeah, maybe. I just looked. I just looked up the Hawks, and all I got was the Atlanta Hawks. By the way, at that Pretenders show where they discovered the Violent Femmes, there was a guy next to him who was playing trombone and drums and like a one-man band thing. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes, the Hawks, the band before, uh, before the band was called the Hawks. So he's in the clear. And yes, with, with rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins. Phil, you should like copyright the the Hawks and then charge your kid whenever yeah, he decides that's a great to go idea. professional. That's a great idea. It sounds like a real Britney's dad move. Right, exactly. Look, we just want to start a band and then we got sued by an NBA basketball team. Who <laughs> knew? Did you know there was an NBA basketball team called the Hawks? What? All right, so... Uh, let's 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 wrap this up. I mean, we've run down, you know, one of the sort of most important, love it or hate it, folk punk records ever. Not just of the '80s, although I don't know when else you're going to make a folk punk record and get noticed. Uh, <laughs> so so let, let's let's bat around. We're starting with Alan, I believe. Where are you at? Oh, What's it's in. Yeah, th this is definitely in. I it's it's unique. It's timeless. It's is is it annoying in some aspects? Yeah, I think like anything, you can find things that rub you the wrong way. But uh, yeah, hundred percent in. What do you think, Adam? Ah, oh, man, this is a tough one. So I. I listened to this the first time and I didn't like it at all. And then, like I said, 12 times through. It's true, man. When you hear stuff a lot, it grows on you. I hate to admit that I've been hearing these <laughs> these melodies and these songs in my head a lot, hearing Rob's uh, defense of this song, regardless of how much I have shat upon it. Uh, I grudgingly admit I was wrong, and I think this needs to be on your list. Woohoo! Uh, as much as I wanted to be the deliberate foil and just go, no, I also want to actually hold true to what I feel. So, yeah, Violent Femmes, you're on the friggin' list. <laughs> Excellent. Rob? I'm so glad that's going to go down on your permanent record. Go to hell. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
you know, we did. We should have talked about more stuff from the '80s because I, I found myself because I was familiar with the record. I did listen to it a few times, but I was also listening to some other stuff from around that era. You mentioned that the first REM album, Murmur, came out yeah. that same year. I gave that a listen. I was listening to like Meat Puppets, a few other things, and it, you know, it's, it was an eclectic kind of journey through what what was sort of going on there in the let's say the burgeoning underground scene. The Meat Puppets were putting out records that early. Yeah, I think the first Meat Puppets wow. record came out in '83. Yeah, that's, really? But then that's the one surprising. Yeah, but then the one that has the songs that Nirvana covered on Unplugged came out a few years later. I think '86, maybe. Very cool. Yeah, they're a pretty interesting, weird band. Anyway, um, okay, yeah, to quote Gordon Gano again, third verse, same as the first. Of course, you must listen to this record. Uh, that's obvious. It has. In my opinion, very few flaws on it. Flaws in the sense of bad songs. I, I really, I found it a little bit, I was a little hard-pressed to find a low point. Is the whole thing a little whiny and teenage angsty? Yeah, it is, but that's the vibe. And if you buy into that, if you break into that, then the pop sensibility on this record is just excellent. I think they have at least four classic pop songs. Probably more like six. So absolutely, you should add this to the canon if you haven't heard this whole record. If Blister in the Sun's the only thing you know, if you don't know anything, put it on deck. Excellent. Uh, I I obviously am a pro on this record. Uh, I love this record. I was excited that we got to listen to it. I actually didn't. I'd like sort of forgotten how it just runs down a whole list of bangers. Like the first four or five songs are just aces um you know and it sort of keeps going from there so this is a definite yes for me one thing i would add is that i am actually most familiar with a like a re-release of this like the the cd version i listened to the most was a uh a remaster which included a few singles that i guess were released b-sides uh of singles uh and there's a song called give me the car which is sort of like Gone Daddy Gone, but even grungier. And uh, it's also a really hip one, so check that out. That's Yeah, I was wondering if that was like a, a later release. But again, yeah, back yeah, to the I, idea of like, this is the song and there's no ambiguity. Like, Dad, give me the car. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, what else can you say? Yes, agreed. Agreed. All right, so that was that was a surprising four out of four. Adam, I'm, you know, I, I'm... I'm happy that we were able to persuade you, but I'm sure the music persuaded you more than we did. Do you mean persuade, so, or did we just wear him down? I think he just. I think this album just wore me down. I think <laughs> <laughs> just refused to give up on being catchy and poppy. Goddamn. Yeah, it. yeah. It really is a pop record behind its twangy, busk, Milwaukee <laughs> vibes. I did think it was hilarious. One anecdote I came across was that uh, at some point, Gano, who owned the songwriting credits, sold Blister in the Sun for a Wendy's commercial. And Brian Ritchie, I think his name was, was a bass player, was fucking pissed. And and he put out some like statement just basically saying like, fuck this. I don't believe in it. If he was a better songwriter, he wouldn't have to do this you know, selling out. He's a vegetarian. First of all, he doesn't eat that shit. Neither do I. I eat gourmet burgers. <laughs> I just like, why would Wendy's want blister in the sun on there? You know, it just doesn't make any sense. You look like you're blister. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. to Look, me. Wendy's, like, you know, they, they've been through some ups and downs, you know, they're not really sure what they want to be. It's a misunderstood yeah. franchise. Sure, sure. I mean, look, if there's anything I'm certain of, it's that if this brain trust, we would definitely want Monaghan in on this, was to take over Wendy's or Arby's. Man, yeah, I mean, we'd be right there with Hardee's and <laughs> Jerry Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So so that's it. Violent Femmes is on the list. That's a, that's a four for four. Violent Femmes are on the list. Uh... Oh, we don't have Monahan, right? How, should we not say his last name? Should we just call him Tom? <laughs> we can. Call- we don't have Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we 
We do have the Appinator though, so which is the you nice know what? thing you know, is that we can. Co- sh- I actually have a copy of the book. Can I just just open it up to a random page? Ooh! All right. Uh, Does that work? You're switching. You're you're switching things up. So our our spinning wheel sound effect won't make much sense. Yeah, but yeah, I will, yeah, yeah. I will instead no, I, record pages. Yeah, yeah no, I, just, I, I think we should just do wait it one just, second. Yeah. I'll go get it. Yeah, run your run your run your thumbs across the pages. <laughs> It's like one of those those radio dramas from the 1930s. Uh, good good right, Foley. Good I'm Foley. Back. I'm back. I'm just back. for a, just for a second there, Phil, you look like Wallace Shawn from The Prince's Bride. <laughs> I'll take that as an insult. <laughs> All right. To be clear, I think Phil went to run and get the Kama Sutra. I think that's Jesus. I have to I have to edit this. Right. So I'm opening it up here. I really do have the book. It's right here. And all right. All right, we got Elliot Smith's Either Or. Okay. Mm. Elliot Smith. Isn't that the guy? I'm thinking Sam Elliot. Never mind. Ooh. Totally different. Mm. He yeah, is not a singer. different yeah. vocal stylings. <laughs> if he's available to sit in with us, though, during the discussion oh, yeah. of Elliot Smith, that might be. Buy yourself a Ford Bronco. Whatever. <laughs> Coors. Right. <laughs> Whoever reviews this, can you make sure to get us? Uh, can you can you do your best to sort of like uh, eliminate any of the urban legends about how he died? Because I know he died like in a crazy, ridiculous situation, but like I feel like in my mind he like stabbed himself in the heart with like a golden <laughs> needle or something God. ridiculous. And wait, and you want someone to dispel that rumor? Or Didn't you to... just add to that problem? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I actually describe what I actually think how he died. I think he was. I think he stabbed himself with some kind of sacred object. I do think there is some question around that, though, which, however we tackle it, deserves I think some yeah. consideration. Yeah, okay. Cliff, well, he definitely cliffhanger. He definitely ended his own life uh, tragically. So, oh, that yeah. that sucks. <laughs> End on a high note. Yeah, <laughs> yeah on that note, cool. Yeah, awesome. So we do have uh, an email if you wanted to write in and just like give us any feedback on the show today, or previous shows. That is one thousand and one album complaints at gmail.com. So if you just want to pop that in there, um, I know that was a little bit of a non sequitur, but you know sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap it up here, guys. Uh, until next week, I've been Phil. I'm Rob. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And this has been 1001 Album Complaints. Boosh.